Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. The passage we're going to look at today seems like a, a bit of a diversion um, from what we've been looking at. We've been looking at this idea of... Uh, Believers as exiles, remember Peter's writing to very small congregations. As first generation Christians in these cities, there's probably, you, you've got, uh, think, think house church. You've got 10, 12, 15, 20 people meeting in a house. Maybe you've got three, four, five houses. That, that, that's the Christian population. It's very small in these areas at this point. First generation, so there's no Christian history. They make it, they've made a shift from following the Roman gods to following Jesus and a corresponding shift in their lifestyle, and that's creating tension within their community. The people who've known them for a long time are going, we don't, we don't like what we're seeing out of you, and that's creating persecution and resulting in suffering. And that's what Peter says. That's part of the deal. If you're an exile, you're a, a foreigner in your, it, this is your native country, but it's now it's not your home. Your citizenship is somewhere else and that's resulted in you experiencing persecution and that's to be expected. Last week, we saw that Peter reframes persecution. He calls it a fiery ordeal. That's refining talk. You take silver or gold ore, you heat it up, the impurities rise to the top and you can scrape them off. And Peter says that the persecution, that's like the heat. And that's causing these impurities to rise to the surface. You can look at it as a test. It's, it's, this suffering is demonstrating the quality of your faith. And those two things go hand in hand. Seeing something as a test that demonstrates the quality of your faith and also a refining fire which purifies your faith. So those, those things kind of build on one another. Today, Peter addresses the church, not in terms of how it relates to the world, but how it relates with it, within itself. And he talks to elders that are the leaders of the church. He talks to the young men, and then he talks to everybody. And again, it seems like a bit of a, of a tangent, but it's actually not. The, the persecution that the individual believers are feeling, it's the same persecution the church as a whole is experiencing. Again, this is a small and young group of believers. And just like in any organization, any system that can be your home, your place of work, your, the church, when the heat gets turned up, that's an opportunity. And, and the, the impurities in our love for one another, those things rise to the surface. And so Peter is saying, here's how I want y'all to interact with one another in the midst of this difficult circumstance that you're all living through together. So chapter five, starting in verse one. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. So the two big things that we're going to talk about today, two big ideas. One, be shepherds of the flock and clothe yourself with humility. We'll talk about some more things, but those are the two big concepts for us. So Peter begins by addressing elders. Elders are the leaders of the local church. Now that word carries some weight to it or maybe some baggage depending on your particular church background. 
Um, we're, we're not going to talk about elders in terms of governing an organization. That's not what's in mind here for Peter. You can pull some of that from 1 Timothy 3 and from Titus 1, but that's not what Peter has in mind. What Peter is talking about is these leaders of these house churches. Don't, don't think somebody like me. Think more like your small group leader. That this, this didn't exist in Peter's day. This, this, the number of believers in this room, that would have been more than an entire city uh, that Peter is writing to. So don't think about a, a corporate gathering like this. Think more about your small group or a house church. And, and in that context, being an elder and being a pastor and being a shepherd, those are all the same things. They're the same in the Bible. Those are the same role. An elder equals a pastor equals a shepherd. So I'm not going to use the word elder this morning, not because it's not a good one, but just because for many of us, it speaks more to a handful of people making decisions for an organization. And that's not what Peter has in mind. What he's thinking about is people who are pastoring or shepherding a small group of folks who are meeting together in their home. And so I'm going to use the word pastor, shepherd, but recognize pastor, shepherd, elder, those are all the same roles in the New Testament. So he says to these elders, he says, be shepherds. Keep watch over the flock. So if you remember back in January when we were going through Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. We use Jesus as our paradigm. This is what a shepherd does. And we said shepherds, their responsibility is to create an environment where sheep can flourish. And it's really hard work. A shepherd can't make a sheep flourish, but he can create an environment where the sheep can flourish. And that may seem like a subtle distinction, but it's really important. A shepherd can't make a sheep eat the good grass that he leads him to. He can't make a sheep drink the clean water that he provides for him. He can't keep a sheep from wandering away into danger as hard as he tries to protect. But he can create conditions for the sheep to flourish. And we said in general, those conditions, that looks like, again, green pasture, good grass, and clean water and protection from predators and pests and from poisonous weeds. So Peter says, be a shepherd. And that would have been an image in their mind. They, they would have known shepherds. Keep watch. That is, take responsibility or accept the responsibility of caring for other people. That's what it means to keep watch. Accept the responsibility of caring for others. And again, those three bullet points that we just mentioned. That, that's some meat on the bone of what it means to care for other people. That was the primary job of what a shepherd did. They had some other responsibilities, but those three main things, good food, clean water, protection from enemies, that, that would have encompassed much of a shepherd's job. So again, when Peter is talking to these elders, he says, be shepherds. They've got a picture of that. Keep watch. All right, I know what that, what that looks like. And we can translate that to ourselves. What does it look like for us to keep watch over people that God has placed in our care? What is, what is good food or green grass looks like, look like? It's, it's the truth that's found in the Bible. Not studying the Bible as a history book or a textbook, but recognizing it's a revelation of who God is. If you want to know God, you're going to know him best through the Bible. A book that's a clear revelation of his character and his activity. Living water. That's the Holy Spirit, this fresh water. Jesus says in John 4, the person who drinks the water that I'm going to give them, they're never going to be thirsty again. And then in John 7, he identifies the water as the Holy Spirit. We teach people how to listen to the voice of the Spirit, how to be led by the Spirit's guidance, how to be filled with the Spirit's presence, how to walk in the gifts that the Holy Spirit desires to give. We teach people to, 
to, to grow in the reality of an ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit. That's this fresh water. And then protection from enemies. Our primary enemy is the devil and his primary weapon is to lie to us. And so we, we speak truth in a loving and kind way. The world and the flesh want to lead us astray. And again, we can warn one another about the dangers of those paths and the temptations that come from walking down those roads. So that's, we, we want to care for one another. We want to accept this responsibility, food, water, protection. That's keeping watch over. We, we want a shepherd. And you may be thinking that's great for people like you. That's your job. And it is my job. But I, I don't want you thinking just in terms of, again, people like me. I think that's too narrow of a definition of what it means to be a shepherd. This is going to get a little muddy, but um, you, um, you can follow. So there's different ways of understanding being a shepherd. And we can just use Stonebridge as an example. So I, th- there's a church in Marietta with a capital C, and Stonebridge is a part of it. Peter says, keep watch, of, keep watch over God's flock, those who are entrusted to you. That idea of being entrusted, it speaks to having a part of a whole. You've been given a piece of this larger group. So I can say, so for me, as a, I, I'm, part of my job is to be the shepherd of Stonebridge, which is about 1,100 or 1,200 people. But that's part of this larger capital C church in Marietta. Jesus is the chief shepherd of that. And he's given me this piece that's called Stonebridge. And then within that, we have other, we have a staff of 16 people. 10 of them are pastors or shepherds. Matt and Bo and Terry and me, we, we share shepherding the adults. And Jeremy and Autumn and Javon, they share shepherding our students, 6th through 12th grade. And Ruth Allen and Katie and Tracy, they share shepherding our kids, birth through 5th grade. We've all been assigned something. But there's more than 10 shepherds at Stonebridge. There's at least... 125, there's 75 people who lead small groups for adults and 25 who lead small groups for kids and 25 who lead small groups for students. And those are official roles. We call those people pastors or shepherds. We call them shepherds. It's the, they're caring for a smaller group. And so I, I, may, I may have a responsibility to a degree for the church as a whole and then Ruth Allen has a responsibility for the the zero through four-year-olds. And then within that, Vanessa is responsible for the three-year-olds. That's the room that she works in. We all have different responsibilities. But I would say even beyond that, many of you have done deep roots. And we've talked about the APES. You remember that from Ephesians 4, those five ministry gifts, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher. And we've talked through what, how has God wired you? Those gifts are different because those gifts are people. This is, this is you as a gift to the body, and you are. You're a gift to the rest of us. There's at least another 150, 200 of you who are wired as shepherds. You may not have an official small group leader role in a church. You may never have a job like mine, and that, that's, that, it doesn't matter. The way you relate to other people is you care for them. That's what you do. You notice the ones who are struggling and straggling and you go to them. You're empathetic in your response to those who are hurting. If you look at your track record, you can probably look back even to probably mid-high school and you could even start seeing it there. This is what I tend to do. I care for other people. And you may think, well, everybody does that and they don't. That's how God has wired you. You're a pastor or you're a shepherd. Again, regardless of what your official role is in a church. 
And then beyond that, I made this up, but I think it's true. I'm calling them positional shepherds. Some of you, you're not gifted to be a shepherd and you're not wired to be a shepherd, but you're one anyway. You're in a position where that is your your role. It's Mother's Day, moms and dads. A great image for what it means to be a parent is to be a shepherd. They're not your kids, they're his. And he's entrusted them to you for a defined period of time. And your responsibility is to not exasperate them, to not provoke them to anger, and to train them in the knowledge and the fear and the love of Jesus. You want to raise them to know him and to be able to follow after him. That's what shepherds do. I'm going to create an environment where my kids can flourish. I can't keep them from making bad choices. They have a mind of their own. But I want to create conditions as much as, it, as, as I can, an environment as much as I can, where these two or three or four, whatever it is, they, where they can flourish while they're in my home and under my care. Many of you in your job, you're a, you're a manager. People report to you. You have a team or you have direct reports. You're a department head, something like that. People come to you. You're a supervisor. I would say you're a shepherd. You may not be wired that way, but that's your role. Leadership in the New Testament, that, that's, that's it. Like that, that's the picture. Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's the model for us. And he models what New Testament leadership looks like. And it looks like being a pastor. So even if you would say, I'm not necessarily wired that way. If you're in a position where you have oversight over a group of people in your company, I would say you're their shepherd. You're certainly not their king. You're certainly not their dictator. We use words like employer and boss, and those words are fine. They're just not New Testament words. I would say, what would it look like for you to look at yourself as a shepherd? Someone who's been entrusted with some portion of God's people, and everyone is ultimately his because he's made us all. Whether or not we're pledging allegiance to Jesus in the moment or not, ultimately everybody is his. He's entrusted you with some portion of his people, and you have a responsibility to care for them. It's being a shepherd. Again, it's, it's not an exact parallel. It looks a little bit different in a church than it does in a home, than it does in a workplace. It looks a little bit different if people are following Jesus and if they're not. But I think there's some truth there for all of us. I want you to hear this charge and encouragement to be a shepherd and to keep watch over those whom God has placed under your care. I don't want you to assume it's, it's, it's for me only, or for our staff only, or even for small group leaders only. I want you to say, no, this is God. If he hasn't yet, he will at some time place some people under your care. And you'll have a responsibility to shepherd them and a privilege and an opportunity to do the same. So as we're walking through a few specifics about how we shepherd, I want you to think through, it'd be great, some names and faces for you. Who are the ones that God has placed under your care? Who are the ones he would say to you, shepherd them, keep watch over these. As much as you can, create an environment for these, and again, think names and faces, for these to flourish. Peter gives three contrasts. He says, I want you to serve willingly, not because you have to. I want you to serve voluntarily. That means to put yourself at God's disposal for his use. If you've ever worked for somebody who did not want to be there, it's miserable for everyone. 
you, we, there's a privilege of being, in a, of being in a place of influence in the life of another person, and we need to recognize that. It's not always easy, but it's always a privilege. And so we want to serve willingly. This, there, there's desire here. God, thank you for giving me the opportunity to invest in, to care for this group of people. Would you give me compassion for them? That's a great prayer to pray. Jesus was often moved by compassion to do all sorts of things. To be compassionate is not necessarily to have a certain emotion. It's to, to move when you see need. It's a deep word, like a down here kind of word. It, it can certainly have an emotional component to it, but you don't have to say, well, I'm not an emotional person, so compassion's not a thing for me. That's a great prayer to pray. That helps with that willing part. He says, serve eagerly, not pursuing selfish gain or dishonest gain. It's okay for there to be people who are paid to be pastors. I'm one of them. But there's also, there's a temptation for anyone who moves into leadership to do it for themselves. It either strokes my ego or it fills up my bank account. And Peter says, no, that's not, you're doing this eagerly. The NIV says eager to serve. It means to be enthusiastic or zealous to serve other people, to meet the needs of others. So we want to check our motives. I don't want to, I don't want to, to care for people in order for me to get something out of that. I wanna see what's best for you and I wanna do those things which ties right into that next one. This is a hard word to say. Exemplarily. Exemplarily. It's not exemplary. That's an adjective. I looked it up. Exemplarily. Nobody's heard that word, but it's real. And it's the only word you're gonna remember today. And you can, you can Google how to pronounce it and they do a better job than me. So it means to be an example, to, to lead in such a way that you're an example to others. That's what Peter says. Don't lord your authority over other people. That's the way the, the world leads. That's not leadership in the kingdom. And that's one of the biggest differences between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. It's, it's, it's how we lead. It's not, I have this power and I have this authority and so you're gonna do what I say. I'm over you. It's Jesus wrapping a towel around his waist and washing the feet of 12 people who would desert and deny and betray him. It's a very, very different picture he is our chief shepherd and we, we are following him. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says, your Bible may say, Be, follow me, follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus or it may say, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. They're, they're both the same thing. People are watching you, your kids, your employees, those, they're watching and that's not pressure, it's just reality. They're going to pick things up from you. The question is just, what are they picking up? If they're imitating you, are they also imitating him? That's really the question we need to be asking. None of us follow perfectly. There's always room for us to grow. So don't, this isn't criticism, it's just the reality for all of us to maybe step back and say, if, if this person is following me or imitating me, how much are they then imitating Jesus, what's the gap between me and him? If they're following me, are they following him as well? And, and Peter says, that's what it means for us to shepherd. We're under shepherds, all of us. 
He is the chief shepherd, and ultimately, he's the one we want people following. It's just they, we can't see him. And so as under-shepherds, we've got skin and bones. We, people can hear us and touch us. And so when they're looking at us, if we're following him, the hope is that they're, as they follow us, they're following him. They follow us who they can see, so they can follow him who they can't. We're not better than anybody else. It's just the role that we play in the lives of other people. You play that in the life of other people and other people play that role in your life. So again, just as an invitation, as you, if, if your son, if your daughter, if your employee, your person in your small group, if they were to imitate you, they also be imitating him. In what ways is that a, yes, they would be. And there are some. And in what ways would you say, not in that. And maybe we wanna put a circle around that and say, God, help me grow there. I, I, I want to see this area of my life become more like Jesus, which ties us back to what we talked about last week, test and refining fire. So then Peter addresses the younger guys in the congregation. So elders weren't always old, but they tended to be. And to the younger guys, he says, submit to them. And that word submit, we've seen before, it means the same thing in this passage, to voluntarily yield to another. There are parameters around submission. We submit out of reverence for God, not because the character of the person we're submitting to is wonderful. And we submit only insofar as to obey a person would not cause us to disobey God. If to obey a human authority would cause you to disobey God, then you can disobey the human authority, and actually you should. We're not gonna spend any time on that. Honestly, it's difficult for me to think about how to talk about that in a way that doesn't at some point become self-serving, and we, y'all, you're great. So we've had 15 or 16 years, and this is not anything that I've seen be an issue in any of our relationships, corporately or small groups or anything. So we're gonna move on past that and hit that last command to all. So this is to all of us, clothe yourself with humility. That word clothe is a really strong word. It's the image is an apron that a servant would put on before they began to serve. So that, that reminds us of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Clothe yourself with humility. God opposes the proud and gives grace or shows favor to the humble. So those are really important concepts in the New Testament. On one hand, we've got proud and pride. And on the other hand, we have humility and humble. We have a sense, we can kind of we kind of know those things when we bump into them, but they're kind of hard to define those concepts. I think fundamentally, or at the core, pride or proud on one hand is to, is to be independent of God. It's a failure to acknowledge your need or my need for God. That's what it means to be proud. I don't need him. I've got this. I've got it under control. I'm the king of my own life. To be humble, to walk in humility, is just the opposite of that. It's to acknowledge your neediness. When Jesus wanted to illustrate humility, he took a little child and he put him in front of his disciples and said, be like that. Kids are unashamed in their recognition of their need for their parents. None of it is cognitive, they're not saying, you know, I need you to meet my needs. What they're saying is, I can't reach the refrigerator and I'm hungry. Just the way a kid lives its life expresses dependence upon his or her parents. 
That's, that's humility in the New Testament. And there are things that flow out of both of those understandings of independence and dependence, some of the character traits that we think of when we think about people who are prideful and people who are humble. But at the core of both of those things, you've got independence and dependence, a failure to recognize need and a willingness to acknowledge and embrace need. And the, 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 the kind of upshot of all of that, and this is, this is for real, God opposes, God resists, God sets himself opposite to the proud. So I want you to think about that. If God is real, if he's the king of the universe, the creator of everything you can see and that you can't see, do you want him setting himself against or opposite you? That's, that's a bad spot. Talk about the seesaw. Like it, it's not even close. And it's not that God resists you because he hates you. It's because you've closed yourself off to him. He gives grace or shows favor to the humble. Those who acknowledge their need, he is quick to show mercy and grace. He moves quickly to those who express their need for him. And all that looks like is crying out for help. I need you, that's it. Doesn't have to be a fancy prayer. And he moves towards you. But those who say, I don't need you, I've got this, I'm doing this on my own, you're hardening your heart to him, you're shutting yourself off from his grace, and the result of that is him, he resists you as well. If you repent, he moves quickly. He's just looking for that acknowledgement. Humility is what postures us to receive the grace of God. That's why pride is so dangerous. It cuts us off from the thing that we most need, which is his unmerited favor in our lives. Apart from his grace, we're standing on our own and none of us can do that for long. You literally are swimming upstream. You're going against the entire tide of the way God has created the universe if you, in, if you insist on saying, I don't need you. If you choose to live independently, and this is, this is a hard thing to say, but it's true, and I think God does it from a posture of love. At some point, what he says is okay. And you're gonna bang into every single rock going down that river. And you're gonna get broken and bruised and bloody. Again, not because he doesn't love you, but because he does. And he's trying to get your attention. If you'll just throw up your hand and say, I need help. He comes quickly to those who cry out to him. You don't have you don't have to do it by yourself. And I would say you can't do it by yourself. If you're willing to humble yourself, he'll save you. Doesn't matter what you've done, that's irrelevant. Acknowledging your need opens you up to his grace, which is the thing that you need the most. And that's true for all of us. It's not me looking down my nose at anybody. 
That's true for every one of us. We've all, all of us have fallen short. Every one of us is needy. Some of us have acknowledged our need and some of us are, have haven't. That's the only difference. Who's walking in grace and who's not. It's not because any of us are better because God loves any of us more than anybody else. It's just who's thrown their hand up. Who's waved the white flag? And I'd encourage you to do that this morning. We're gonna close with communion. The way we do that here at Stonebridge, you'll come forward a row at a time and take a piece of bread and dip it in the juice and there's gluten-free communion and the packaged communion, whatever you feel the most comfortable with. If you're coming down this main aisle, there'll be two, two stations on either side so you just see wherever the, the line's the shortest and that kind of helps keep us moving and there'll be another station over there in the wing. We'll also have ministry teams and we'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. I would say and even beg, if you're wrestling with this whole idea of independence and dependence with the Lord, let these guys pray with you. Say, I'm, this is not easy for me. I'm struggling because this, this, or that. I trusted God here and he let me down. And so I'm afraid to trust him again, whatever it is. Let these guys help. They're not gonna try to convince you of anything, but they would love to pray that God would reveal himself to you in a deeper and a greater way. And would give you courage, honestly, to say yes, to open yourself to him in a greater degree. For some of you, what Sandy and Lauren said, you're still kind of mulling on that. You're still thinking about mom and Mother's Day and maybe there's, that's a complicated situation for you and you would like grace in whatever those variables are. And we'd love to pray with you about that as well. For some of you, maybe you just realized today, I'm a shepherd I didn't know it, but I am. And so there's some things I need to change. I need to make some shifts. I need to begin to see whoever these people are kind of ticking through. I need to recognize that I've been entrusted with them. And so I want to watch over them and help create an environment where those guys can flourish and thrive. And you may want us to pray that God would help you know what the specific things are that you can do and begin to, to implement. So anyway, we'll pray with you about anything that you have going on, but we would in, invite you and even urge you to receive prayer. So I'm going to say a prayer briefly, and then we're going to pray a couple of prayers corporately, and I'll have you stand up for that when it's time. And then I'll ask you to sit back down, and Bo and Chad will lead us in one song of worship. When you'll take communion, you can receive prayer, and you can go back to your seats, and then they'll dismiss us after that song. So I'm going to say a prayer, and then we'll, um, we'll get into communion. God, I do want to pray first for any here who are struggling because it's Mother's Day, and that's a source of tension for them or a source of sadness or frustration or grief. I pray for your comfort, Holy Spirit, and whatever the dynamics are in the hearts of those in the room for whom this is not necessarily a joyous day. Would you comfort? Would you console? Would you redeem? Would you deliver? Would you heal? Would you make whole? I pray that song that we sang would be the testimony of those who are wrestling right now, that you turn you bring beauty from ashes. And I pray that you would do that. God, I pray for all of us that we would accept the part of your people that you've assigned to us. If it's one or if it's a hundred, God, I pray that we would say yes to watching over those who you've placed under our care. We wouldn't be burdened unnecessarily by that, but we will see the opportunities to help create environments where people can flourish and thrive. And would you lead us 
and how to best do that. We don't want to lord authority over any, but we want to serve. I pray for all of us in terms of how we're interacting with everybody. I pray that we would put on that apron of servanthood, pouring ourselves out like a drink offering to you on behalf of others, washing feet. And God, if there are any, and I'm thinking there's, there's at least a handful in the room who right now, if they were honest, would say that they're pretty stubborn in their resistance to you. I pray that that resistance would be melted in these next few moments, whether it's rooted in hurt or disappointment, maybe it's rooted in confusion or even ignorance, just not knowing. God, I pray that you would melt it, that there'd be some white flags waved this morning. And that you would come quickly to the rescue of those who are hurting. I pray as we take communion, Holy Spirit, that we would recognize that you lead us more deeply into the truth of the love of the Father and the sacrifice of the Son. That this bread and this juice represents the fullness of your provision for us, Father. Everything that we need, you provide. You don't withhold any good thing from us. So as we take communion, I want to encourage you to go ahead and maybe think What's your area of greatest need this morning? Maybe you just want to clock that in your mind. Don't compare it to what you think somebody else's need. It may feel insignificant. But if it's the greatest need in your life, we want to say, I want to live dependently in that area. What's your area of greatest need? As you take communion, I want you to, just the physical act of coming forward and eating a piece of bread that's been dipped in juice, just... That let that represent the God's promise to, to meet that need, to fulfill whatever that gap is in you. Holy Spirit, would you do that work in us, in our circumstances, in our, in our bodies, wherever these needs are. I pray that you would meet them according to your riches and glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 